Hello and welcome to the 19th episode of the Mike McNair Revolutionary Strategy Series. Today is Saturday the 27th of July 2019 and I'm your host Tom O'Brien. This week we finish Chapter 6, Unity in Diversity, and continue our brutal attack on the sect form. I have two new Patreons to thank, Mara Penguin and Justin Tervala. You too can join the Patreon gang gang for only $5 a month, which works out at $1 an episode. The voting has just begun on the choice for the next reading group series, so it's a great time to sign up. At the moment, Eric Ulwin Wright's Understanding Class is the early leader, with the 18th Brumaire a couple of lengths behind. Unfortunately, the critique of the Gotha Programme and Grossman's The Law of Accumulation are lagging at the rear like two knackered old nags. If you'd like to comment on the show, please do so on the YouTube channel, and make sure to like, subscribe and share. You can also join me on Facebook or Twitter too. Okay, to the discussion. Lexi, do you want to yeah. have, a, have a go at reading these two paragraphs and we'll kind of... Let's see if we can see ourselves out of the micro swamp. There are several potential elements of such a road, uh, but the main point is this. For the working class ranks to subordinate the middle class officials to themselves, it is utterly indispensable that the ranks have the freedom to organize without the say-so of the officials. We have already seen that organization is indispensable to the working class pursuing its interests. This is just as true within the organizations that the working class itself creates as it is in the larger society. This leads to the same conclusions as the first and more abstract point. To retain its character as an effective instrument of the proletariat as a class, a workers' organization must have the freedom to organize factions within its ranks. Indeed, the struggle of trends, platforms, and factions is a normal and essential means by which its differences are collectivized and a unity created out of them. It must be a unity in diversity. Unity in diversity can be denied to the movement in three ways. Bureaucratic suppression or exclusion of dissenting factions is an obvious one. Equally obvious is the ultimatist refusal of unity for limited common action where that is possible on the basis that there's insufficient agreement on other tasks. The third and less obvious, but equally common way is to fudge differences by diplomatic agreement to windy generalities or to self-censor and thereby pretend that there is more agreement than there actually is. It is this last course of action with which Marx and Engels attack in their critiques of the 1875 Gotha program. So does the bureaucratic suppression or exclusion of dissenting factions, so we have to allow factions that we should be able to come together with people for particular tasks and organize with them. Yes, and let com suck it. That That's a little more complicated than is making it out to be in today's environment. Some people would have a hard time, let's say, cooperating on a pro-abortion action with a transphobic feminist group. That would be a hard sell even to me. But I think like in the left, you sometimes have to like, deal with these sorts of things as long as people are willing to cooperate i actually don't understand a split from the right based on on this right here part of the issue with that seems to me to be that since most of these are activist organizations working together actually does imply tacit agreement with them on other issues since well, think- there's no framework for a united front to exist where those things can be hashed out 
Well, I think this goes back to this, like, earlier... And I don't necessarily agree with this, but it goes back to like earlier, McNair's earlier points on like how the conversations about being able to be critical of right-wing socialists if you're going to organize with them in that United Front sense. Kind of like the first example he gave at the beginning of the chapter was how Lenin told British communists that it was fine to be part of the Labour Party as long as they have the ability to be critical and agitate for their own views, if that makes sense. So I think that's kind of solved by that. I don't necessarily agree with that perspective 100%, but that's the McNair answer, I believe. Yeah, I think I think so. I think that's what he means. Yeah, you can have common action, but you have to be able to voice your differences. I think he kind of marks the border of where you cannot go is fudge diplomat. It was with the next one. So he kind of wants that middle yeah. area between cooperation and subordinating yourself to the right. Before we move on to that third point, though, I want to kind of like address something Lexi was talking about just now. To me, the easy answer to to that hypothetical and similar hypotheticals is that you have to have certain limits, obviously. So like you mm-hmm. can generally work with different orgs or work with different people who might have things you disagree with. But you shouldn't block with fascists on anti-imperialism, obviously. Uh, that's like another hypothetical. So I think, like, as long as we have, like, certain, like, we will have unity for limited common action, except in certain special cases. Well, I mean, I even picked TERFs because I think they're, you know, to me especially egregious. If, let's say, there's an anti-imperialist rally or something, and there will be fascists there, like, how do you handle this exactly? You beat the shit out of them. You get yourself a two by four. You put some nails in it. You run up behind yeah. them. You get them in the back of their knees. And then you stab yeah. them in the throat. I mean, okay. I don't necessarily disagree with that. But th- there are obvious like scenarios where like, if you don't know turfs are at like the, the pro-abortion rally, you know what I mean? Then like you can't really do anything about that. But there's a difference between people just showing up to something versus like intentional planning for an action or intentional planning for a common cause with people who hold these views, if that makes any sense. There does have to be some kind of grounds on which you actually do say that the cost of being seen as unified with a group, right. even on the left, is greater than the cost of working with them on a limited option in an official capacity. Now, in an unofficial capacity, it's different. But this is, does seem to be saying this is within an official capacity. Right. That's That's, I think, what he's saying. I brought out that example, maybe it's like an extreme example, or it's like question begging or something. But, you know, is that well, something that we we actually agree with? Maybe these are extreme examples, but they're not implausible, ultimately, as far as like IRL organizing. I think it's fine to have this as a general rule of thumb, but to say with certain people or certain orgs or certain ideologies or whatever, you'll make an exception to this. Because it, 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 the cost of working with them in an official capacity is just too great. Yeah, when I was, uh, in my experience, when I was like first getting into leftism, I would go to these sects, and that would just really bother. I just did not, I still don't like it at all, that there's a party line, and everybody must follow this party line, and there's just no, yeah, opposing views. That's just something that really bothered me, and still does. Do you know what bothers yeah. me is when, like, during the summer, it gets bright really early and I don't have blackout blinds in my windows and I wake up early. That bothers me. <laughs> that happens to me all the time. 
I would I'd like to say something about this third and less obvious one here about how we can't fudge our differences by diplomatic agreement to windy generalities or self-censor. And he kind of quotes Marx and Engels under attacks of the critique of the, the Gotha program here. But did Marx and Engels not censor their own critique? Right. They did They did the very thing he's saying you can't do. I mean, they censored this, didn't publish it for sake of party unity. I mean, and, and even later when Engels is uh, critiquing the effort program, he, he, he sends his critiques to Kautsky privately so that when Kautsky writes his explanation of the program, that Engels' critiques are subtly built into the interpretive rubric, which thus actually changes the meaning of the program. We know this all from historical stuff. It wasn't that known at the time. Come on, Beards. Disdain to conceal. Disdain yeah. to conceal. It's your own damn words. Did the daddies let us down? God. Jeez. Oh, but like, I think it, like, when it comes to this stuff, it, this is kind of political strategy in some sense. If you're a military strategist, you don't always say attack is always correct in this situation. It can be correct and then not correct. Like the problem with it is that you can justify anything by saying the, the conditions are different. But there is a truth to that. And like I think that if Marx and Engels saw, oh, look, this is going to create a massive socialist party and it's going to grow. And then they say, well, let it grow and then let's, let us try and influence it. That, that could be the politically correct thing to do. I don't know how hard and fast this rule should be. I understand the reasoning for why they did what they did, but I think history didn't absolve them. And it, I mean, it might not have necessarily changed anything if they were allowed to be as critical as they wanted of, you know, the early SP day or its precursors. They were, they were allowed. They just didn't do it for their own reasons. It's not like right. somebody was stopping them. Well, okay. That's so wrong, weird. Wrong That's my, my point is, is that they... There's an important I, di- my difference, point is that they weren't absolved by yes. the direction that the SPD went. Like, the SPD became what it became. I'm, I'm less inclined to want to make exceptions to this one, personally. And I, I think another, another kind of interesting example of this that isn't what necessarily what McNair is talking about, but kind of a similar problem is that you had, this was like the thing within Rennegraval, like you would fudge your differences and agree to uh, windy generalities. And maybe I'm being a bit harsh there, but the the difference is that I believe McNair is talking more about unity with right-wing socialists. And that wasn't necessarily the problem with Rennegraval. The problem was that you had a hodgepodge of people who honestly didn't get along and then it blew up in our faces. And, and realistically, like we really, there was no official rule against making factions, but it was kind of poo-pooed for people to make factions. Like if you had like an international Marxist faction, a Stalinist faction, and like an anarchist faction, or you tried to start that, you'd be kind of looked down upon as being too theoretical. You know what I mean? Or too concerned about ideology or whatever. And it wasn't like a direct suppression of democratic differences of opinion. People debated and disagreed on things all the time, but there was a limit to the how much you can officially have disagreements. And they were try a lot of times they would try to be like glossed over. And I think in the long run that really hurt the org rather than helped. And it, it was done under the, the idea of like the anarchist abuse of praxis where, you know, we're all about doing action and all this nerd shit is useless. 
let's keep going. This is a bureaucratic centralism versus the United Front. In effect, the policy of the United Front was a struggle for unity in action of the whole working class, combined with the open expression of differences. And this is an objective need of the proletariat, not merely for the second period, the restabilization of capitalism in the mid-20s, but under all conditions. But a deep grasp of this question eluded the common turn, both the history of the split and the 1921 adoption of the ban on factions precluded it. The history of the split meant that half the justification offered for the split was to purge the workers' movement of opportunism. This justification is obviously opposed to any form of unity, even partial. The logic of the idea that a split would purge the workers' movement of opportunism was expressed in the sectarianism of the third period. The ban on factions was itself a direct denial of the need for unity in diversity in the communist parties and common turn. The effect of this ban was that the communist parties came to replicate Blanquist groups or the secret Bakuninist dictatorial conspiracy of 1871. Right. A bit of a burn, like Leninism yeah. as Blanquism or Bakuninism. Not wrong. Not wrong. But like, what's so kind of obviously depressing about this is that this party form was designed for a war. They said, oh, the final battle is upon us. You know, go to the to the barricades and we'll overtake these capitalist pigs or whatever. And that like this idea that we're still stuck in this middle of this death grip battle with capital is so goddamn absurd at the moment. And that we have these political parties and groups that still behave like they're in goddamn wartime communism. Like it's so goddamn pathetic. It's (sighs) fucking depressing. It's so goddamn depressing that when people are interested in in socialism or communism, they go to one of these things. This is what they get. It's goddamn. It's so obvious. Anyone with two goddamn brain cells. Rant over. It's just hard to accept that. If you take this left, center, right dichotomy, the Bolsheviks are throughout their whole, well, until the Popular Front, for most of the time, they're a leftist strategic deviation. They want to skip part of the strategy of patience because of, and take advantage of the war. You know, they have, they have principle of selective opposition. They'll be opposition in some formal places and they'll, you know, abstain from others. Like it's too heroic to fail. You know, it's not, it's, it's, it's too much. This is something I, I've been trying to account for this sort of like Blancist and Bakuninist overlap, which is, it's kind of weird. It's kind of hard to wrap your head around. And so it doesn't appear to people as being like a right-wing deviation because through this strategic thing, it's, you know, strategically speaking, it was sort of a leftist deviation. The Comintern leaders had quite properly asserted that the United Front was not a permanent policy, but a road to the reunification of the workers' movement on a higher level, represented by the Communist parties and the international. But the character of the Communist Party's post-1921 regime meant that they could not express a proletariat's class need for unity and diversity. On the contrary, the bureaucratic dictatorship of a socialist right was now paralleled by a more ferocious bureaucratic dictatorship of a communist party apparatuses with its head in Moscow. Once the communist parties had taken this form, the natural inference was that real unity and diversity was actually impossible. The unity in the party could not be unity and diversity. Therefore, neither could broader unity. 
This left the only choices available to the radical separation, third period, or fudging diplomatic unity, in which the communists self-centered to conceal actual differences between themselves and their left socialist or trade union leaders. Once they'd gone this way, this idea of unity and diversity was never really going to work, you know? And the other thing is, like, posit this Communist Party form versus Marx's writings on, like, what was McNair talked about just at the start of this chapter. Remember I said it was kind of Hegelian stuff? Yeah, I kind of love this Hegelian stuff. Whenever I read things that are non-Hegelian and then I come back to it, I'm like, ah, this is wonderful. <laughs> it's like a warm bath. I, yeah, I hate reading it, I must say. It's kind of like really bong rip sometimes, but at other times. Yeah. But but I like what it's trying to do, like how it's trying to yeah. like capture the dynamics and the complexity and everything. Well when it's done right, it's lovely. When it's done wrong, it's like shut up, hippie. I don't care. <laughs> when, <laughs> like, when it's... Like, this, like sometimes it just sounds like nonsense, but other times but a, a lot of times it's just like wow, this is great. But when it's done wrong, it like shakes my faith in the overall enterprise. It makes me think the cool stuff is fake too, which is and the often, problem. And like, often when yeah. it's done wrong is in Hegel himself, which is also problematic AF. And I don't mean like the cortex that everyone talks about, like the shorter and longer logic or the phenomenology, although the phenomenology is never honestly translated most of the time. All the religious associations and the languages that are apparent in German are dropped. But read his lectures on the history of religion, or, or and you're just like, oh, 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 the 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 stuff from uh, or the philosophy of the right is not actually as deviationist as people seem to think it is. So, yeah, the Hegelian stuff is great, but also maddening, and that goes back to Hegel. And I think Lexi, you're secretly like a a fangirl for uh, the analytic, not so much anti-Hegelian, but post-Hegelian or analytic Hegelian synthesis thinkers. Like, like even in philosophers, I tend to like Brandom, who's like, let's actually do Hegel, like, but right this time, which is interesting. But yeah, I, I, I say this because it's good stuff, but also it ends up being prose poetry a lot of time without a lot of meaning. Like I find if I have to read some Hegelian speak, I have it takes me or an hour to read about two pages. When the concepts aren't that hard, but it's just the language just destroys me. Yeah, I feel that too. I, I hate the way that a lot of Hegelians and Hegel himself sometimes talks. It could it could be explained much better. Okay, so what do people think about all this stuff here then, about this this idea then of like bureaucratic centralism and the United Front and why it couldn't work? To me, what this says is that functionally the Leninist parties become the new right, right wing, or a different version of the right wing of socialism. That's what, I mean, if, if they have a ultimatist kind of detail on the workers' movement, that they function in the same way, do they not? Well, I agree with that intuition, and the way that I could say that while preserving his sort of, like, thing is to say that the left center right axis isn't the only important like axis. There's a possibility of a leftist option, so, sort of more or less, becoming a more vicious dictatorship because of what I would say like is like state form or like you know what is the proposed kind of society that's like what's on offer as the proletarian state? What's on offer as 
so society. so you mean you know bourgeois conceptions of a singular unitary axis may not be totally universally applicable in all contexts oh my gosh no one's ever said that before yeah herbert marcuse <laughs> never said that in the 60s that's right but seriously like you know un again until the popular front leninism is a leftist deviation and a vicious leftist dictatorship but even in the in the orthodox marxist strategic spectrum when I think of it on paper, I'm like, oh, vicious leftist dictatorship. Finally, we, we have our own. Uh, but in, in practice, <laughs> it also does eventually, Sophie, lead to the right in the popular front and beyond. But, well, um, yeah, it leads to the right in the popular front, and then it also leads back to capitalism. That's been just historically shown. Right, yeah, the, the, the right, the right un underneath it all is, is making peace with capitalism basically. But I still think it's interesting that when you get anti-revisionists in the 60s, some of them take on this like permanent third period mode thing. And again, by this orthodox, like Marxist strategic spectrum, they adopt a species of center left or left com strategy. And they have this, you know, hard tank thing going on. So maybe they feel this way about party organization and strategic questions. But then they also think that sending in the tanks was cool. So it's just a different axis of difference there. That, yeah, that's it, it, it explains how you could have like new left Maoists that kind of have a whiff of anarchism about them, but yet also are protesting. Yeah. He's going to get on to here with Trotsky and the United Front. Trotsky was intimately involved in the creation of the common term policy of the United Front. A great deal of his political struggle after he lost out in the battle for leadership of the Russian Communist Party was focused on it. His writings on Britain and China in the 1920s attacked the Comintern's diplomatic unity policy. Between 1928 and 1933, he battled in print against the third period sectarianism. In 1934 to 1938, he counterposed the Workers' United Front to the Comintern People's Front policy, and at the same time battled against the diplomatic fudging unity approach of the London Bureau of Left Socialist Parties and of many of his own co-thinkers in the international left opposition and its successor organizations. But Trotsky, in spite of participating in the Russian left 1920s criticism of the party regime, never escaped from the contradiction between the United Front policy of, in the 1920-21 thesis on the organizational character of the communist parties. He internalized formally the idea that before 1917, Lenin was right and he was wrong on the party question and clung to the policies of the first four Congresses of the Comintern as an anchor in the shifting seas of policies of the grouplets outside of the mainstream of the socialist and communist parties. And as a side note, I've always found this fascinating because the, the very structure that Trotsky is often critique on these questions gets uh, maintained. So, for example, the slate voting stuff, which which uh, Bolsheviks didn't do before, believe, 1921, which clearly was part of how Stalin got in power. Trotsky took over to all his organizations because he maintained all those structures. Explain that structure, what you mean by the slate. Well, so you vote, you vote on whole slates of who run. You don't vote on like individual positions. You vote whole slate, open ballot. Everyone knows who votes what way. So if you lose... It, you can be retaliated against and particularly later on removed from life. And this was actually, and you, you still have socialists say that this is like actual proper accountability. Like I've heard even non-ML say this. So you vote for a slate for... So like you vote for like the party secretary, you vote for an entire cabinet. 
So like the like so when you vote for his like head party secretary, you also vote for him to have assembled his entire cabinet. So there's no opposition within the cabinet, and they can all work together. It's also part of the faction ban. Oh, that sounds like an incredibly dumb idea. Well, that's how. The, yeah, but that's how <laughs> almost all these parties work that way. You don't say it was a dumb idea. You don't say. <laughs> well, what does that like? What does that tell you about what Trotsky was like? Uh Unfortunately, like a lot of the great like Trotsky texts, because I used to be in a Trotsky and I would read some of the later Trotsky and be like, that's pretty good. How come he's like not held in better regard? I mean, it just he's just a massive hypocrite. Like it, it just stains so many of the good documents of the left opposition is that, you know, when Trotsky was in power, he wrote terrorism and communism. So basically, Trotsky, we'll see here, Trotsky started with microgroups. When they got bigger, they tended to bolshevize their parties, creating an overt or covert dictatorship of their petty bureaucracies. To such organizations, a real commitment to unity and diversity of the workers' movement was as inconceivable as it was to the Stalinists. Unity had to be diplomatic. The alternative was sectarian self-isolation. He's going to go through here, you know, all these examples of more sex stuff that I said we wouldn't go through. Let's 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 read this part here. Yeah, but the history of Trotsky's struggle for the United Front policy meant that even in sectarian isolation, the Trotskyists tended both a to attach themselves to sections of a mass movement while censoring and hiding their own banner, as in the Labour Party entry and similar tactics, and b <laughs> to create fronts which purported to be United Fronts of the Left, but were in fact bureaucratically controlled by particular Trotskyist organizations. The Heliites, the All-Trade Union, the International Socialist SWPs, rank-and-file movements, the Lambertists, Parti des Travailleurs, Workers' Party, and so on. The Mandelites actually constructed a theory which justifies diplomatic unity. Bensaids slash Gibraltar, Dialectique de Unite, de Brodimente, uh, oh my god. Fuck <laughs> me. Baguette. Oh my I thought I thought you were order, I thought for a second there I thought for a second there you were ordering a cup of coffee and a baguette. Oh, oh god. I mean I think I'm bad at French. <laughs> oh, I'm I, mean, this paragraph. I feel vindicated. <laughs> That's all I have to say is I feel vindicated. <laughs> Americans, what did you fuck? guys? You guys ever see that episode of Dexter's Lab where he's like, "Yeah, they do full." Yeah, you did. Yeah. Okay, good. Are the episode of Inside Zero Books where I pronounce pronounce Gilles Duvet's name five different ways in like one sentence? <laughs> I thought you were talking about five different people. Who's, who's this Duvet and then it's Duvet and Dubon? What the hell? I, I promise that I'm probably pronouncing it wrong anyway. And I just I just did an episode on Duvet. I'm pretty sure I'm, I'm saying it wrong. You want to read some Duvet? I, I, I yeah. will say, I will say that honestly, until this last this last little paragraph here in the Mandalites and Tony clarify, actually even I don't know what he was talking about. Like I was like, oh, but I know who the Mandalites are and I know who Tony Cliff is. But before then, I was yeah, like he, long strains of French gibberish. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I'm think I I did not know I could not I did not know any of this. I was like, this was this two paragraphs. I just went totally over my head. <laughs> I I read Mandel's book on the long waves. It was pretty decent. Okay, okay. 
Dialectic of unity and overflowing, or outflanking. The theory was plagiarized by John Ross and Tony Clift and thereby found its way into the common sense of the British far left. In this theory, the united front is a tactic and one applicable by a small group, rather than a policy for the whole of the working class. Diplomatic unity with the reformists, or a section of them, makes it possible to set the masses in motion in a particular struggle. The Trotskyists then demonstrate these, to these masses that they are better fighters for this particular struggle and or they will not draw back from carrying this particular struggle to the end. As a result, the mobilized masses then turn to the Trotskyists. The theory justified diplomatic unity because the masses break with the reformists in action, not in ideas, with the implication that they do so in relation to their particular struggles. Unity with reformists is essential to set the masses in motion and on this particular struggles it is unnecessary for the Trotskyists to offer Chartres' criticism of reformists, which might prevent unity. The massive struggle will find the reformists out. Yeah, the, yeah. the ISL actually functioned this way. The, in Ireland now, there's the Irish, there's the Socialist Party, and they are actually a Mandalite party. They're a member of Mandalites International. And they got three TDs in the doll. So they got three MPs, essentially, in, out of 166. So it's pretty good. They have like, you know, they're doing quite well. Best, probably as good as they've ever been. And when the IMF came into Ireland, when the when the shit hit the fan in the economy, a part of the bailout with the IMF and the EU and the ECB was that Ireland would have to privatise their water. And between this party, I think, and one other small trot party as well, there's two small trot parties, they managed to stop the privatisation of the water. It's a hell of a big thing that they managed to do. And how big is the party now after an amazing success like that? They're exactly the same size. Okay. Oh, sad. Yeah. And a major, major, major victory for it. Okay. So this idea that, you know, what does it say here? In, in action. What was that last bit you, you, you read there? Um, yeah, the, the particular in action, struggles. Ideas. Yeah, in action well, uh... and not ideas. Right? It, it doesn't work. If it would work in Ireland, you would have seen a massive bump, right? Between the two parties now, after an incredible victory like that, I think they've got six seats between the two of them, okay? And probably going back before that happened, they probably had four or something like that. Were they like the only party that supported it? They were the driving force of it, absolutely. I'm not sure if other parties actually supported it, Certainly the big political parties would have been for so, privatizing. So we don't have anything like that on the national level in the United States, but we did have something like that on the local level in the United States, which was the 5 for 16 struggle in Seattle in specific, led by the one socialist city council member in the country for, for a few years, which was a big inspiration for the DSA. And they operated under the same auspices. And guess where all the membership growth happened? Again, to kind of complicate this, it's not as simple as the IRS case. But um, all the growth seems to have actually happened in the DSA. The SA hasn't been able to really, which is the group that actually spearheaded the SWAT campaign, actually really hasn't been able to benefit much from it outside of the initial win in Seattle. So apparently just this doesn't work. It's also not really honest. This is popular front and rebranded in a lot of ways yeah so yeah i guess my kind of thoughts are like the general gist of it i actually kind of get and sort of agree with but there's two things that bug me and these kind of are things that bug me the trotskyists in general 
is that it's not honest. And McNair will get into this a little bit later, but when he talks about how these parties discourage their members from like getting involved in other struggles, like they became very single issue focused. That doesn't make a lick of sense to me either, because when you organize with people who aren't like radicalized or whatever, and you're inter- interacting with workers who aren't like woke, you know, they're not solely single action usually, you know what I mean? Or single issue usually. They're, they usually care about more than one thing. And so that just doesn't, that seems so out of touch, you know? Look, I think one of the big problems with it is that the, I think there's a great, the most, one of the most limiting factors is that when people really meet these trot parties and they get involved with them, they don't like them or they kind of piss them off in reality. That even a party right. that's like, you know, the size of the Socialist Party in Ireland, they're, they're essentially a troc sect, you know, just a reasonably successful one. And they have the exact same behaviors that annoy people about these groups. And their self, their, their strategy of organizational form is self-limiting more than anything else. Right. Yeah, I would definitely agree. That's kind of what turned me off of trot parties and so on. Yeah, so are we going to continue? Try this paragraph here. The underlying problem is that it is a variant of the sub mass strike strategy discussed in Chapter 2. Once the masses, or even quite small layers of newly radicalizing militants, actually begin to enter the political stage, they demand of the left not good fighters on the particular struggle, but an alternative political authority. At once, this poses the question of a party in at least the Kautskian sense. This requires addressing the full range of questions affecting the society as a whole. Followers of the Bensage de Brock versions of the United Front are inherently obsessed with action as the road to overcoming the reformists and therefore debar themselves from offering such answers. They also hold back militants who wish to go beyond the narrow aims of the particular struggle. The result is that far from turning to the Trotskyists, these militants turn to parties which are prepared to offer broader policies. Yeah, this whole thing with action reminds me so much of like the things that turn me off from anarchism, even like better anarchism. Even with like the anarchists who aren't hyper insurrectionary, they get this kind of attitude of like, oh, if you're not doing mutual aid and involved in your community and doing action, you know, whatever that means then you're just some kind of nerd. And there's like kind of this implied masculinist kind of like only faggots read read books, you know? And they wouldn't say it's that, true, but... It's true. I mean, I'm down yeah. with that. Yeah, They're not wrong, I guess. <laughs> That's division yeah. of labor for you. <laughs> yeah, the facts are here, and then the real men go over here. That's fine. <laughs> yeah, the anar- my local anarchists are also like that. We have like an IWW branch here, and they're not very fond of reading books, put it lightly. <laughs> But to bring it back to this whole thing with the Trotskyists, it's hella ironic that Trotskyists are falling into the same kind of behavioral patterns. And in, and in this paragraph about them being so focused on like a narrow topic seems even worse than anarchists. Like not only are they doing that weird masculinist posturing, they're doing it stupidly. <laughs> you know what I mean? 
Yeah, like, and, and and what's also strange about it, honestly, and I've noticed this this book actually explained this tendency to me because I never could figure it out before. Why Trotskyists in practice, like they gather their cadres and send them off doing whatever particular action thing, while they're like secretly hoarding all the left opposition books ever and like running publication and conferences about them, but they don't teach them to their cadre members at all. Yeah, it's it's Ooh. this is the reason because they don't think it's important until the future. <sighs> They think it will be important after all the masses just wake up and side with them, maybe. And then that never yeah. happened. Well, they don't really believe in the strategy. It's bad faith and in, in motion. If they believed in the strategy, they would teach their militants this stuff. And they, their militants would be better for it because it's a good strategy. It's worth teaching. They don't want people who can argue and free thinkers. It gets in the way Truth. of like selling newspapers and stuff. They wanted troops at one point, but that, that hasn't been true since the 60s. Let's be, I mean, like, but the reason why most of these groups are falling apart now is their scandals, but their scandals aren't new. They've had them. I mean, I'm sure for every like horrible rape scandal we've heard of for out of a Maoist or Trotskyist group, there's 50 more going back to the 60s we don't know anything about. That's not the only reason why all this stuff is falling apart. I mean, that's a part of the reason why, but other reasons why is like, their money-making strategies are, are, I mean, like, if you look at what the ISO actually did, it was the same stuff you can do in the DSA, plus Haymarket Books, plus maybe Historical Materialism Conference, plus be involved in your own special cult. I mean, I don't know. And that's not, that wasn't true historically. That wasn't true probably even in the 90s, but that's where this led. This particular focus clearly led, led there. And in countries where maybe they were smaller, maybe there was a more advanced working class, it wasn't as bad. Latin American trots don't have the same feel to them the way the British and American trots do, but it didn't seem to matter. Well, yeah, is part it, of this is, is like class character of organization apart from success. Because the thing about like Latin American Trotskyism is that, you know, in Argentina, there were stakes in Latin American Trotskyism. You know, workers had a stake in it in a way that didn't happen in the United States for the most part. But like you're saying, it didn't change everything about it. It doesn't change some of the deep structure of Leninism or 20th century Marxism and what have you. It's kind of like saying, even if it does work, we're still in trouble because it's inadequate. I'm going to read this last little bit because I like it. The version of the United Front defended by new left Trotskyists has another and equally disastrous character. The common term policy of the United Front is about unity of the working class movement as a whole. It is not about the sort of blocks of grouplets and prominent left individual leftists which new left Trotskyists call United Fronts. Such blocks and agreements may, of course, be useful tactics, but dignifying them with the name of the United Front provides an excuse for sectarianism to present itself as non-sectarian. It also abandons to the reformist right the idea of unity of the working class movement as a whole. The split between communists loyal to the working class as an international class and coalitionist socialists loyal to the nation state will never be healed as long as communists insist on organising to fight for their ideas. The policy of the United Workers Front is therefore an essential element of strategy in the fight for workers' power. But this policy can only make sense as part of a larger struggle for unity and diversity. And this struggle is a struggle against, among other things, the Trotskyist concept of the United Front. What is the grouplets he's talking about? The blocks of grouplets? What is he referring to exactly? 
yeah, you might have a united, like the Marxist center in America now, a few sects getting together. Yeah, or the ver oh. like the various times, like international answer is another, like another one from years back. Coalition Fourth international, is maybe? Well, yeah, sort of. I mean, yeah, the Fourth Internationals ended up being, but the thing is, most of the Fourth Internationals didn't stay groups of secolites they became secolites themselves so like that's why i used to make the joke about how many fourth internationals does it take to screw in a light bulb okay i get it because you have something like the 37th division of the fourth international or whatever and i'm i'm, I'm only kind of joking and so you did have a lot particularly in the 60s where you had like coalitions of anti-revisionists and like new left trots who like didn't try to like recapitulate the party but they would also do stuff like join and mass like a like a group like the SPA and like form coalitions within them and we've seen it's very similar to what's going on now it's kind of problematic but this is the criticism of like grouplets of left unity where the unity is between groups not between mass organizations of workers in a party so what's he saying here this sentence here kind of threw me a bit there reading it this time. The split between communists loyal to the working class as an international class and coalitionist socialists loyal to the nation state will never be healed as long as communists insist on organizing to fight for their ideas. Does he mean mm -hmm. just like actions and that, that critique of the trot party form? It's kind of like there's no use in suppressing these differences. These differences are important. We have to cop to these differences. Even though we might need to angle towards unity on actions, we can't like fudge these differences. This is an important strategic break. You can't just fudge the difference between nationalist, you know, socialism and you know, international communism. There's a difference between what Bernie Sanders wants and what I want, and you ha that's it. Or it's just organizationally important, even if you're working on the same thing. Bernie Sanders wants the Zimmer frame. Let's be honest. Bernie Sanders <laughs> wants this dick. <laughs> oh, that's a leftist deviation. That's not a left a leftist deviation. That's a leftist deviant. That's right. Yeah. Oh, um, hey, it me. <laughs> so before we wrap, before we wrap up, do, does anybody want to say anything about the chapter as a whole now that we're finished this thing? I, I don't know. I've been thinking a lot about like how to practically apply this and. What kind of came to mind towards the end of this chapter with me is that um, at this kind of like weak point of the workers' movement, because like Derek loves to say, right, like the whole thing with the mergers formula is that you have to have like a working class movement to merge with, right? And so it's hard for me to imagine how to formally apply some of these ideas. And so the thing I come back to is that as far as like how to apply these in organizing, you have to be basically informally open about your disagreements if like in arizona for example there's like a lot of good like solidarity and like kind of uh non-profits for people who are refugees and a lot of the people in this like doing this uh, activism are like uh liberals right so i think like when discussions of these kind of topics come up organically you just are honest about what you think you know it's it's okay to like avoid confusing jargon or buzzwords that might be scary to people, but it's still good to be able to explain your views in a way that's understandable and in a way that will be honest about disagreements with them. Honesty about disagreements is a really succinct way to put it. Specifically, this distinction between socialism, quote unquote, and this is more of a problem in Europe and actually in the rest of the world than the United States, even though it's becoming a problem in the United States. 
it's becoming a problem because of a good thing. Basically, the sort of anti-communism of years past has sort of broken a bit. And so that's good, but it's bad in that it gets more confusing. We had, we had a more accurate lay of the land when people couldn't tell the difference between socialism and communism. And so they banished democratic expressions of socialism. In a left communist way, it left things starker. It, le it left the contradictions more heightened, you might say, in the, in the anarcho-Maoism. But now we kind of face the same issue in the United States if you live in a more, quote, progressive area. If you live in real-ass America, you probably have the same damn problem as always. I don't know. I, I feel like this chapter cl clarified some of my skepticism about other groups while also making me wonder if this was actually an answer to it, because the fundamental question still sort of remains is, isn't this kind of starting at step C? What do you mean? Is this, is this the half rethinking that McNair is criticizing in the rest of the book? Right. I mean, like, the half rethinking, it's still accepting a whole lot. And it still kind of it assumes conditions are operable from times past that I don't know that are operable even in the UK or in the Nordic countries where there are much, much stronger union presence. So it's it's hard it's hard for me to to know whether or not I think this is something we should be skeptical of or something that's just really premature to articulate right now. Yeah, I think this is really really underestimating the current weakness of the workers' movement, even considering what McNair says at the beginning of the book about how our current time is more closer to the mid to late 19th century than it is to the early 20th century in that similarities in the weakness of the workers' movement. They still essentially had, in the at least in the last uh, quarter of the 19th century, they still had uh, international I mean, we ain't, we ain't got shit compared to that, realistically. You know what I mean? And the international was a response. It was like in concert with self-activity. You know, it wasn't all exactly. constructed. So I think I think there is maybe if we're taking that that at face value about being similar to like the early nineteenth century, maybe there is a horizon of workers' self-activity that might help build like an actual workers' movement we can merge with. But as it stands right now, I think a lot of this is, is too in the future. And I think Derek is essentially right in that, like, this is like assuming step C instead of step A. Well, I suppose it's not just about America. You know what I mean? It's totally just about communist strategy worldwide. I think he this is it's just about Britain. And I'm not even sure this is true there. I not mean, now, probably. Well, the point of the exercise that he's doing is if there are like lessons from the 20th century, this is what they would be. And I think we can assume a bunch of the conditions that he needs to make this relevant and still have questions about whether it's sufficient, whether it's a sufficient critique. But, you know, again, I don't, I don't have a concrete a counterposition because he's basically trying to square a very important circle. How do you split and still have unity of the socialist movement? You can't, but you have to like angle at it. And because the, the stuff he says that leads to the split, I think that's all pretty sound argumentation. So what you going to do? <laughs> On this episode, you heard the team tune, the order, and the pharaonic gestures 
and The Night of the Purple Moon by Sunra and his orchestra. Thank you for listening, and please join me for the next episode of From Alpha to Omega. This show is a member of the Emancipation Network, a Marxist podcast and research collective. Make sure to check out our network's sister podcasts, General Intellect Unit and Swampside Chats. Thank you.